Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia and the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour on your radio where we talk about science. And who are we? Well, I'm Stu and on this week's show I'm going to be talking about the momentous occasion of a Nobel Prize winner. Um, Actually, the Physics Nobel Prize winner who happens to be just the third woman to ever win the Nobel Prize for Physics, which is pretty shocking considering how long that's been running. It's um, it's very shocking. The third, Not only the third, but the last woman to win a Nobel Prize was over 50 years ago. In physics. In physics, yes, yes. sorry. The yeah. last woman to win a Nobel Prize in physics was over 50 years ago. Yeah, and I'll be looking at some of that it's it's just it's a bit uh, it's a bit embarrassing for the uh, Nobel committee really really in a lot of ways but uh Claire what are you going to be informing us of this week well I've got a special guest in the studio this week uh Chris Gerbing who is the co-director of the environmental film festival is in the studio and he's going to be telling us all about uh what sort of about what the program is for 2018 for the Environmental Film Festival, which is happening in Melbourne, but he's also going to tell us about how um, communities around Australia can get involved in bringing films about um, about uh, environmental education, scientific education, and also advocacy into their communities as well. Awesome. And on the topic of the environment, Chris is going to be joining us in the studio later Uh, to talk about the latest figures released by the Australian Federal Government on uh, greenhouse gas emissions and what those figures actually tell us. It doesn't actually sound too good from from what I've read about that, but... uh, Yeah, I think it's going to be a bear of bad news. Yeah, Yeah, certainly the government seems to be either unaware or deliberately misleading about how much greenhouse gas they've reduced, which doesn't sound like a lot. Jimmy, jimming the numbers. Yeah, sort of shuffling them around to uh, to say what they want them to say. Anyway, we'll hear that directly from Chris uh, later on in the show, so stay tuned. As we know, October is the time of year when Nobel Prize winners are announced. Uh, And over the first week, um, well, the first week or so, uh, pretty much all of the winners will have been informed of the good news, unless they're hiding away on an island with no phone. But they they should know. They should know by now. Yeah, Yeah. they, they should know. They just stagger the announcements. Though. They it's do. Not, it's not just like one release of Nobel Prize winners. It's like every every day there's a new winner, right? Yeah, and there's and there's a couple of days between them, and I guess that sort of helps to um helps to sort of stagger the news. You know, they're from all around the world, so and the yeah, date everyone lines gets will, their moment in the sun. Yeah, and date lines would be variable depending <laughs> on where you are and things like that. But anyway, the end of the first week, everyone should know that they are winners or not winners. So in the history of the prizes, uh, there's been a total of 585 Nobel Prizes awarded to 923 winners. Um, and that's prize for peace, economics, and literature, um, as well as, obviously, the prizes that we're interested in on Lost in Science, the the sciences of chemistry, physics, and medicine or physiology. They can actually 
be in either of those fields. And that, you know, that's human health stuff. Let's, let's be clear yeah, about just, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so over the 117 year history of the prizes of that total of 923 people, only 48 women have been recognized for their work. And of that group, what? Of that That's group, like 5%. Yeah. Of that group, only 17 were awarded for science prizes. So the majority of women have been for, you know, a great, good on them. I mean, that's fantastic that they're getting peace prizes and economics prizes and literature prizes, but it's a very, very low number for uh, for science prizes. Considering the science prizes make up 50% of the prizes. Yeah, yeah. So you would think, you know, 50% of that 50% of prizes should have been to women, potentially. Mm, mm. Um, look, but this year, one of the prize winners for physics was a woman. And as we mentioned in the intro, she's the third prize winner in physics who's a woman in over a century of prizes being handed out. Uh, and the first for nearly 60 years, which also happens to be the gap between the, uh, the first prize winner, Marie Curie, and the second prize winner uh, in physics who is also a woman. Um, so Marie Curie won what, the first... What's, what's our second prize winner's name? Um, yeah, so uh, Marie Curie won the first, was the first woman to win the Nobel Prize of Physics in 1903. Then in 1963, uh, Maria Mayer uh, won the Nobel Prize for Physics for her work, and not unimportant work it was, in modelling the structure of the atomic nucleus... So thanks wow. for that, you know, so pretty, pretty, you know, important physics that she actually yeah. contributed. And obviously Marie Curie did so many different things. And she also got another prize. Um, Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Yeah, that's right. So she's a she's a double Nobel winner, um, which still doesn't really make up for the, the lack of <laughs> other women in the, uh, in the <laughs> pantheon in any way. Um, but look, after another half-century gap, Donna Strickland has been recognised for her work in studying the properties of lasers, along with two male colleagues, Arthur Ashkin and Gerard Moreau, who she worked with directly. Um, so she and Moreau developed an improved technique called chirped pulse amplification of lasers. And what that means is basically they Something can... Something to do with chickens? No, no chickens, no <laughs> baby birds. They can manipulate the laser so that it gives a very, very, very high energy pulse in a very, very short amount of time. Um, so high, in fact, that they have to uh, sort of build special equipment because the amount of energy that's released in these pulses can actually damage the lasers themselves. So they're so powerful, they can... They can blow <laughs> they up the can't laser. Be contained. Yeah, they're, they're, and they literally have to make special lasers to use this chirped wow. uh, amplification pulse. Um, so they are used for a whole lot of different things, predominantly in the field of optical physics, which is what Donna Strickland researches. Um, but also, there sounds like there's a lot of potential for these um, high, very, very high energy pulse lasers for research in nuclear fusion, which is a potential energy source, which could, you know, provide, you remember in Back to the Future, Mr. Fusion, yes. the little Mr. Fusion yes, driver, you just chuck anything fusion. in yeah, there yeah. and off you go, off you go. into, into the future. Yeah, I don't think it'll be that simple. But look, you know, it's still a lot better Something than... Something to aspire to. It's a lot better than all of the energy sources we have <laughs> currently. So maybe, maybe that will lead to that. Um, she, Donna Strickland, is uh, an associate professor at Waterloo University in Canada. Um, and you notice I said associate professor. So she uh, hopefully will get 
along with her Nobel Prize, a promotion to, you know, full, <laughs> full professor. professor. Um, maybe just, you know, we've got how many Nobel Prize winners do they have on the faculty at Waterloo? Let's one, at least, who should be a full professor, I reckon. Do you think? I, I think. I think so. I think, I think we so. should We should maybe petition the, uh, yeah. the, the board. Um, apparently, her page on Wikipedia was rejected by editors on Wikipedia when someone tried to start one uh, in May last year. They said there wasn't enough information about Donna Strickland. She wasn't important enough. Um, it obviously was. Yeah, it was approved. Um, it's when, really highlighting a lot of, like, quite systemic issues. It really is. For women. Yeah, like. Physics. Within within her faculty, she is you know recognised in a sort of secondary position. She didn't even get a Wikipedia page. I mean, there's pubs in Melbourne that have got Wikipedia pages. It's, you know, what, what's what's the quality that we yeah. need here? Um, but yeah, apparently, as soon as she as soon as her page was approved, it just filled up with information instantaneously. People just went, "Yes, I'm a fan," and they just put all this information, wow. put on links to uh, all of her work and all things like that. Um, so that's nice to know. But um, I did do a bit of background reading. According to a report from UNESCO, only 30% of researchers in all fields of science are women. Um, and even taking into account, you know, that 30% of all science science researchers are women, less than 2% of Nobel Prize science winners are women. So that's a massive discrepancy. Despite there being, you know, a slight minority in women working in science, there still should be a bigger representation in women uh, winners, surely. Um, so I just thought, you know, also another thing that's happening at this time of the year all around the country is that people are finishing up high school and working out what <laughs> courses to apply for yes. for next year. And I just I'm thought, wondering where this is going. I just thought maybe we could just give them a little nudge and In consider... In direction. Well, just any kind of science, really. <laughs> like if, if 30% of women are representing, you know, in every field of science, then if you're even slightly interested in science, try and sign up to a science subject even, even if you don't do a whole course in science. Uh, it's got to be better for everyone if we have, you know, whether it's in medicine or maths or engineering or applied science, it doesn't really matter what you do. It's, the world needs more scientists and more science literate people as well, this I think. This is true. As this we... is very true. And, you know, f speaking from a female perspective, um, I feel like the tides are changing for women in STEM, in the science, technology, engineering and maths. We have um, we have a female uh, Australian of the Year who is also a physicist, Michelle Simmons. Yeah. Um, Professor Michelle Simmons. So, um, you know, that's just... That's just one female scientist, but she's the Australian of the Year. Um, so there is finally starting to be a little bit of recognition for women in, in quite traditionally underrepresented areas of science. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I just thought it was a good time to bring it up because, you know, if we want to get more winners in science prizes <laughs> and in science, women. we need more women in there being yeah. scientists. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just thought yeah, we should just... Get behind everyone if you're thinking of doing science. Do it. Just do it. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. The 
Environmental Film Festival is kicking off in Melbourne this week with a whole swag of inspiring stories to inform viewers, create positive change for the environment, regardless of whether you're into toxicology, nature documentary or environmental advocacy. There is something for you. Now to talk us through some of the highlights of the festival is a co-director, Chris Gerbing. Welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, tell us about the Environmental Film Festival. What is it all about? So our festival, like you said at the start there, is about creating positive change through films and we bring environmental films to audiences, in particularly in Melbourne, to show all sorts of issues that are happening around the world, but also not just issues to celebrate the environment and the wonders and the beauty of the world, also to kind of learn lessons from heroes that are doing amazing things for the sustainability and environment movement around the world. And now let's talk about the program for 2018. So um, uh, what are some of the highlights specifically? um, Do you have a lot of sort of science films? For sure. I mean, the great thing about our festival is that we cast the net really wide. So we're looking at different ways of interpreting the environment or telling stories about the environment. So whether it's a scientific approach or an advocacy approach or an experimental way. We kind of cover all bases. So the answer is yes, we have quite a few films that take a scientific approach or have scientists as a kind of characters in the film, which is which is really cool and it's a passion of mine. So I actually quite like that end of things. Um, and we've got some great films up this year as well. Um, can you talk us through some of your, I don't want to say favourites, but I don't know. Do I want to say favourites? Well, I can talk favourites, but I can talk (laughs) things that are interesting to everybody, I suppose, and that perhaps people can seek out on their own as well. So a a real top one for me is a film called Bird of Prey, and it's a film about the conservation efforts to save the Philippine eagle, which is very large and very endangered. There's less than 1,000 of them left in the Philippines. And the film is uh, made by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology from um, Cornell University, who 30 years ago, some of the scientists from there um, went to the Philippines to basically support the conservation work of the local community there and also take photos, nature, nature photography of the Philippine eagle. And so now they return 30 years later with the film crew to to kind of follow their efforts in reconnecting with the community and looking at some of the pressures that now in the modern day face the Philippine eagle, which are basically the same ones, deforestation and removal of habitat. And so, yeah, you get a behind-the-scenes look at some of this nature photography that we, you know, commonly love and enjoy and see in all and the how great difficult magazines. it is. Absolutely, <laughs> it's so hard. It's incredible oh what they go through. Wow. Uh, so you get a, pictures of that, but then you get to also see the the fruits of their of their labor and this incredible footage of the Philippine eagle doing its thing as it tries to rear its young, which oh, is really wow. interesting. Oh, that sounds incredible. Any other standouts? Uh, we're playing a film called Anate's Ark, which is about sea level rise as it affects Kiribati and the Pacific Island nations. And so that's a, obviously an incredibly hot topic right now. But what we have is a film about Anate Tong, who's the former president of Kiribati, and he's a huge climate activist uh, and uh, doing a lot of advocacy. Did Anate um, go to the UN? Is that who spoke at the UN uh, over the last couple of years? Yes. So he was really influential in 2015 um, when the Paris Climate Agreement was happening and did a lot of work to, um, you know, 
in the negotiations that were happening in that global in global environment. So he's now you know a really important figure in this space, and he's actually coming to Melbourne, and he'll be a guest of the festival. So he's on a uh, speaking tour of Australia, and so people would be able to catch him in various events in Sydney, Canberra, and Melbourne, but kicking off at the film festival in Melbourne. And we're playing a film that's called The Devil We Know. It's about the impact on the community in West Virginia of chemicals that are found in Teflon. So a number of people in this community um, work in the DuPont factory in Teflon over a number of years. And they've you know, been basically that company proven to have been illegally dumping toxic waste into waterways. And this film looks at some of the impacts of people that are working there and also in the community. It's a really classic environmental documentary in the sense of its investigative nature. Um, but it's an interesting one um, to talk about in a local context because it's really a question of exposure and other things like that. So uh, it's a really well-created film by some really excellent filmmakers, but also we'll have a discussion afterwards about, you know, is this uh, is this a reality? Do we need to throw out all our pots and pans or do we need to think about, yeah, uh, exposure and load that we receive of chemicals in, in our environment? I mean, you mentioned the Environmental Film Festival. It must attract a lot of different people um, and you've got a lot of panels that you um, that you coordinate so people can discuss the issues after the event. Um, are there, what, what are the other ways that the Environmental Film Festival is a bit different to the other film festivals, um, either in Melbourne or around Australia? Yeah, I think our festival is quite different in the sense that we're really focused on enacting change and having a positive impact through the films that we play. So whilst enjoyment is obviously a key because you want to go away feeling that you've had a good time sure, or, yeah. le- or learnt something or been educated or you know met people that are passionate about the same ideas of you about you or heard something you didn't know about. So I think what's the most different about our festival is that we bring films, environmental documentaries um, to Australia that would otherwise never be seen actually because there's not many festivals that are curating the kind of content that we do so you know whether it's um we also have a 30 percent australian uh, film target so we have this year 13 films that we're playing a lot of them are short films so that we can have give the opportunity for local environmental filmmakers to show their work and we can hear about local stories that are impacting you know the people the people around us and and our everyday lives and I mean, it's, it's, it's wonderful to have that experience of seeing a short film and then a longer film, so being able to be transported somewhere around the world but also be able to see exactly what's going on in your own neighbourhood as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the, the panel discussions that you talked about are also about bringing it back to our own neighbourhood, whether it's communities, our businesses or us as an individual, and that's a really important part of the festival as well because we can play a film about the Lithuanian old growth forest but what is it that we can learn about our own nature conservation efforts locally? Would you say think global, act local, Chris? (laughs) Wow, (laughs) you've nailed it. (laughs) Um, Now you've been involved in the festival for a few years now, right? I have. I've been involved for six years. Wonderful. So you you would have seen quite a lot of environmental uh, films. You would have um, taken part in a lot of panels and seen a lot of things happening throughout those six years. Um, what's What's been a couple of your um, highlights and maybe a couple yeah. of your challenges? Yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting to have been involved in this festival for six years because I've seen, like you say, a lot of 
a lot of really fascinating and thought-provoking films. There's so much good stuff out there. It's not just what we get served up uh, in the cinemas or you know, in more mainstream festivals that uh, play maybe a couple of nature-related documentaries about animals. But um, So for me, it's about discovering this world of really important filmmaking that actually can make a huge difference and really communities and people can rally around to inform their ideas, to inspire them to take further action like we've been talking about. So that's that's incredibly important. Plus the festival is an all-volunteer organisation, so people that you know bust a gut to put on a what was once described to me as a medium-sized festival, which was very pleasing and shocking because we're all volunteers doing it out of the love for telling stories and bringing films to, to the big screen. So that's incredibly rewarding. And then challenging is just getting the word out there, you know, which is part of why we're talking today, but also, <laughs> you know, having the having the support within the community and, and really importantly, like, um, like-minded corporate partners that can support us to, to put it on in a really professional way. That's really challenging and a constant battle, I suppose, but yeah, it's incredibly rewarding once it all goes live. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Um, now, the Environmental Film Festival is based in Melbourne. Um, are there any ways for communities outside of Metro Melbourne to get involved in the sorts of films that, that are in the program this year? Absolutely. Uh, so many of the films, environmental films that are, that are made, have their own impact agenda associated with them. So whether they've got a campaign behind it or a donation movement kind of thing or a petition to sign, that kind of thing. So what you'll find is that a lot of uh, the films, if you go to their website, they'll have a way for community groups to actually access the film just by contacting them directly via email or contacting an impact producer and telling them a little bit about yourself and when you want to play it. So many of the films have that option. It's as easy as that. Yeah, it, it really is. Don't worry about emailing us. Go straight to the source and find a big screen somewhere and, and, and play a really important film. Well, Chris, thanks so much for um, coming in and talking to us about all things um, Envirofilm today. And if you are in Melbourne, head along to the Environmental Film Festival from October 11 to 19. So it is kicking off on Thursday, October 11, the evening. What do you have playing for the kickoff, Chris? We actually have a really sciencey film, which I should have mentioned before. It's called Into the Okavango. It's a story of um, some scientists that travel 144 days down the Okavango River Delta, discovering species and looking at the impact of humans on the ecosystem. It's an awesome film. It's a great way to kick off the festival. And yeah, get along or check out the films any way you can. That sounds incredible. So the full program is at www.effa.org.au. Thanks again, Chris.
Okay, yes, you listened to Lost in Science, and I am talking about uh, the latest report about Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. Now, a bit of a disclaimer here. This report is from the Australian government from the Department of Environment and Energy. So it's their own numbers, but I have no other alternative data, so I'm not going to question it. If you, if you don't agree, then <laughs> find your own stats. Who's doing the research? The department is doing yes, the research. Yes, they have their own greenhouse gas accounts section. Hmm. Anyway, like um, the the too long to not read um, bit is the emissions went up in the last in the last year. They went up by about one point three percent between March twenty seventeen and March twenty eighteen. When this well, report that's is dated. bad news already, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But the government, like specifically Environment Minister Melissa Price, has said that they're still on track to meet their emissions targets. Um, you know, we'll look a bit more closely at that a bit later. But let me just say that I mean I can't actually predict the future, so I can't say too much about that, uh, particularly with a government that's as shifty as this one. I mean, it shifts its policy as much as this one. It's a bit hard to predict what And shifts will its eyes from left to right, that's right in a shifty that's right. manner. And shifts its Prime Minister yeah. from <laughs> month to month. <laughs> but look, let, 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 let's look at the actual numbers of, of what's happened in the past year or you know, previous, say, 10 years even. So in terms of emissions overall, electricity is, of course, the biggest contributor, uh, about 34% of emissions come from the electricity sector. Um, and but, but emissions from electricity went down by 4.3% or 8.1 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent. So what are you what are we um, what can we attribute that to? Well uh, there was a decrease in brown coal generation. Um, and, br- and brown coal is the particularly dirty kind yeah. There was an increase in natural gas and renewables. Um, there was also recently been an increase in black coal power generation. Black coal is obviously not great, but it's supposed to be cleaner than, than brown coal. But the one I want to pick on here is the natural gas, because natural gas is often, I guess, seen as like the bridging fuel. It's like, mm. it's got about half the um, carbon dioxide emissions as um, brown, something like brown coal. Um, so it's often seen as like the step to the is, carbon-free future. Is, is that in, in equivalent energy output, that it's half the emissions? Yeah, yeah, so right, it, yeah. it produces the same amount of electricity with half the emissions. Yes. Yeah. Right, okay. So, yeah, like, um, so natural gas has increased, but, um, and this has contributed to the drop in emissions from electricity production. However, there was an increase of emissions of 6.9 million tonnes equivalent in what they call fugitive emissions. And this is basically. Hang on. What is that going to do with Harrison Ford? No. No, or Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> no, and no man with one arm. No. He didn't exist, did he? No, he did. Um, so the fugitive emissions are basically gas that gets away. So it basically includes things like methane leaks from gas wells. And methane is a potent greenhouse gas, more potent than carbon dioxide. Although we are counting carbon dioxide equivalents here, so that kind of doesn't matter in this calculating. But but uh, So natural gas is is got a high proportion of methane in it, but when you yep. burn it, that's less of a problem, obviously. Yeah, that's right. But the thing is, when you have like wells in and the gas gets out, when you're closing down and opening up wells in and the gas gets out, basically the gas gets out in the process. And so this there's is a bunch this of is. gas leaks. This is, so this is not gas that's involved in the production of electricity. This is gas that is being emitted somewhere in the, literally in the pipeline. Right. Now, um, the CSIRO, who's involved with this sort of thing, they've helped helpfully put out a fact sheet on the science of fugitive emissions. And they say things like that the, most of the leaks come from what they call super emitters. And these um, about 1% of all uh, wells are about these super emitters. So they're the, the leaky wells. Um, and there's... the biggest wells, if are they? 
Well, it's not so that I say they're the biggest. It just means they, they leak a lot more than the other ones. Right, so ones okay. that are fairly good, and then there's a few uh, a small number that are, that are pretty bad. Similar studies in the US have found got a similar result. Um, but look, it's one thing to say that, oh, it's a minority of them causing the problem, another thing to actually fix the problem. And as we've seen, the problem is actually quite sizable because you look at the amount of methane that's being emitted from this sector and you look at what that causes in terms of our carbon emissions, compare that to the reduction in carbon emissions from the switch to natural gas, and it's kind of a net negative, it seems. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So they're actually contributing more greenhouse gases than they're getting rid of. From from my understanding of the numbers, yes. Okay. So um, Because methane is so much more potent. potent. That's right. That's right, yeah. So... Basically, renewables are a much better option than natural gas. Natural gas is not really helping us to get to a, a lower emissions future because it is causing as much problems as it's, as it's solving. And this is despite you know, the CSIRO trying to downplay the significance by comparing the amount of methane emitted from wells to equivalent number of cows, which is a, a unit that they use. These super emitters, is there anything, is there any technology being developed to um, help them become less... Um, Leaky. Well, I don't know what actions are being are being um, taken to to fix them up. Now Basically, that... people are doing studies to say, "Oh, there is the, there are these super emitters, right?" But and I they whether... are measuring how much is coming yeah. out. Yeah. Now, now that uh, now that most wine bottles have screw tops, there's a lot of corks around. We could probably <laughs> put them to some use. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, speaking of cows, um, the report also tracks emissions from enteric fermentation, which is the digestion of things like cows. Yes. Uh, cows burping in particular. Not so much mm. farting, it's, it's the burping. Uh, the burping you've got to worry about. Yes. Now, the, um, this is, the emissions from this has gone up in the past year by about 1.5 million tonnes, um, although the, though it's hard to know the long-term trend. So there's been a bit of talk about how we need to think about our own climate-friendly food choices. But I just want to highlight that... Um, uh, beef is also a big export industry in Australia. We export something like 68% of our beef production. So really the story is about, to me, is about the type of industry we have and what we're making money out of as a nation. And we're basically doing carbon-intensive uh, industries. Um, but as I said, look, um, it seems hard to say because, yeah, cow burps did go up in the past year, but the long-term trend was slightly down. So this past year may have been just a hiccup. <clears throat> oh, <clears throat> there it is. Uh, now, other increases are transport emissions have gone up, mostly from the use of diesel fuel. Um, again, this is kind of about the um, more transportation being used, you know, trucks and this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, rather, so it's, again, it's about you know, industry and the type of industries and things that we have. Um yeah, so that is that is kind of the that is kind of the the big messages in there. There's some other few smaller ones up and down. Um, so I suppose the question really is, what does this mean for our Paris targets? Uh, you know, we committed to something at the Paris thing a few years ago. Yeah. Um, now commitment was a 26 to 28 percent reduction on our 2005 levels by the year 2030. Uh, now, this latest report says we're 11% under 2005 levels, but we're about halfway through that time period and we're heading in the wrong direction. So perhaps not so great, one would say. Now, you know, a lot of things could happen in the next few years. Uh, you know, we are seeing reduces, drops in price uh, for renewables. We're seeing technology changes and this kind of stuff. Um, and this will help us because electricity, of course, is the biggest, uh, biggest sector. But yeah, we do need to actually make things go in the right directions. Remember, it's not just electricity. There's other impacts across the whole of the economy. All the other different sectors contribute as well. And we 
you know, need to have smart choices bringing it all down uh, if we're going to actually head in the right direction. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.